If you've ever been to SeaWorld or a large aquarium, you've probably seen the shows with the dolphins and the seals and the whales and all the amazing feats they accomplish that they've been trained to do. I don't know if you've noticed, you probably have, if you were very observant, you've probably noticed that when those animals finish a particular trick that they've been taught to do, they will come over and and be near the trainer, and as the trainer is talking about the animal or about the feat they've accomplished, they're dumping handfuls of fish in that uh, animal's mouth as a reward. Now, I think sometimes we treat our relationship with God the very same way. And our equation, our math, goes somewhat like this. Love Him, be obedient to Him, serve Him, and that equals reward. Now, there's some truth to that. We know that God will reward us for faithful lives and faithful service. But the problem is how we often interpret or identify what rewards are. Sometimes we think that that reward means that if I serve God, I love Him, I'm faithful to Him, I'm doing what I should be doing, then God is obligated to bless me and reward me in very tangible ways, maybe with good health, maybe with financial resources, maybe with just clearing out all my problems and making life easier for me. Well, I see some of you kind of shaking your heads. You know, if you know anything about characters in the Bible, you know that's just not true all the time. God does not always work that way, and His rewards do not always equate to things that make us feel good, feel better, have all of our problems solved immediately, and just have an easy path in life. God does not always work that way. Look at all the characters in the Bible, and you can certainly see that's not true in their lives. Well, I want to take us this morning to one of those characters to see how God rewarded him, led him, worked in his life, after an amazing accomplishment of faithfulness. His name is Elijah, and his story is in 1 Kings chapter 17. So please open your Bibles to 1 Kings 17, and we're going to see what God did in the life of this prophet. It's important to realize that Elijah lived at a very dark time in Israel's history. In fact, the king, Ahab, had made a political alliance with Phoenicia through marrying the Phoenician king's daughter, Jezebel. And so this was more of a political arrangement, but Jezebel, when she came to live in the capital of Israel, brought with her a pagan religious system, the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth. And Baal became the official god of the nation of Israel. God raised up the prophet Elijah to challenge that false religion to challenge that idolatry. And he kind of bursts on the scene unannounced. He kind of streaks across the blackness of Israel's sky like a comet through the air. And notice what happens in chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's it. He, he just appears suddenly on the scene, delivers this message. He's been faithful to God. He has been obedient to God. He has done what God told him to do. He has served faithfully. And now we might think, well, God will certainly reward him. 
And it will be measurable, tangible, bigger and better type of progress. Maybe God will give him an evangelistic crusade throughout Israel and he'll, he'll announce the drought and preach the message of Jehovah and see a great revival. Maybe God will bring him to a, a bigger ministry in Judah. Or maybe God will cause Jezebel to be converted and that will lead to a great revival throughout the land. But none of that happens. Notice what happens in verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kerith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kerith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. What does God do with his prophet? How does he reward the faithfulness of his prophet? He forces him into solitude and loneliness at an out-of-the-way place where God alone will be able to take care of his needs. I think we all go through times of forced isolation and loneliness. And that can happen for a number of different reasons. We might think of them as timeouts in our lives. Times when the action seems to stop, when we become very lonely and we are forced into a time of solitude. It may be because we uh, have had a physical illness, an extended illness, and we are kind of lonely and isolated. We may feel set aside. We may wonder if God remembers us, if he's still working, if he's still blessing and doing what we expect him to do. It may be a health-related issue. It may be the fact that uh, there's been a, a, a breakdown of a marriage or the death of a spouse or the wandering away from the faith of a child. It may be a friend has turned against you because of some misunderstanding. It may be that your company has just announced they're downsizing and your job will end in two weeks. It may just simply be an inner struggle that you can't really express or explain adequately to anybody else. Or it may simply be leadership. Leadership carries with it its own set of difficulties, of loneliness and isolation and inability to explain all the pressure. At times like those, if any of those describe you, at times like those, there is a numbing sense of loneliness that invades the heart. Our spiritual vision gets blurry, and we have trouble seeing the hand of God at times like that. We may feel that He is distant, that He's no longer hearing us, that He's forgotten about us, that He's set us aside and we wonder whether He will ever show up again. In those times in life, we are in danger of going into a spiritual free fall and of becoming so discouraged that we're tempted to give up. Now, COVID has really done a number on us that way, hasn't it? The pandemic has caused a lot of isolation, a lot of loneliness. Probably all of us have had family members who have died or someone that we know who has died, someone who has gone in the hospital and family was not able to be with them. We had a, a brother-in-law that, that died suddenly of COVID after being fully vaccinated, 
And his wife also had COVID, was not able to be with him, and he died in a couple of days. It was just so heart-wrenching for her. Many of you have had that same experience. Loneliness, isolation, wondering where God is in the midst of this. Well, if that's you today, I want to join you to sit with me by the brook Kareth with this lonely, isolated prophet and see what God is doing, what work he is doing in those times of isolation and loneliness. I think this passage tells us at least four things that God does in lonely times. He is not absent. He is not idle. He has not forgotten about you. He has not shoved you off to the side. He is still at work. It's just that it's hard to understand and see sometimes when we are so confused what he's doing. So let's learn from Elijah and his loneliness, his isolation, the work that God does in lonely times. First of all, he does a work of protection a work of protection. Look again at verse 2, if you would, please. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward. And notice these words, hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. Now, the, the Hebrew word translated hide in our English translation is a very interesting word. It's not necessarily talking about concealing someone or withdrawing someone. The real thrust of this word is to protect. It's not hide in the sense that you're trying to be isolated as much as it is God saying to Elijah, I am going to protect you. Now, it's obvious the kind of protection that Elijah needed. He needed protection from the hand of Ahab. I mean, after all, he's just shot to number one on the ten most wanted list. In Israel, Ahab is out to find him, maybe to kill him, at least to try to pressure him to lift the drought because he said, the Lord told me to tell you there will not be any dew or rain except at my word. So obviously Ahab wants him to call that off. In fact, we know that later when God is preparing Elijah to go to Mount Carmel and he's going to reconnect with Ahab, God brings into Elijah's presence a man by the name of Obadiah who served in the king's presence but was also a faithful believer. And Obadiah says to Elijah in chapter 18 and verse 10, As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. So Ahab was out to get him. God was going to protect Elijah from that search and what Ahab would intend to do to Elijah. But think of all the other people, all the other people that would want a word with Elijah to try to persuade him to lift the drought. Think of the United Farm Workers or the Samaria Flower and Garden Club. All of those people and many others would want this thing lifted. We don't need this drought. We don't want this drought And so everybody is looking for Elijah. God is going to protect him. In fact, Elijah was so well hidden that we're still not sure where he was. Uh, Nobody really knows where the brook Kareth was. And even the, the wording of go on the East Jordan, that Hebrew word can also be translated on the face of the Jordan. 
So we're not really sure if he was on the east side of the Jordan River or the west side of the Jordan River. It was one of those many brooks that flows down from the mountainous areas into the area of the Jordan River. Somewhere in there, God hid him very well. You say, well, what does that have to do with me? I'm not running from a king. I I don't need to be hidden or protected from any government authorities. Well, don't think that too quickly. Uh, We are living in a day where the cultural and moral climate is changing so quickly that what I'm about to describe has already happened in Canada, where laws have been passed that forbid you to declare or believe in any church or ministry setting what we believe the Bible teaches about moral truth. And so there may come a day when we will need protection, when we may be sought by even governmental authorities for breaking so-called laws because we believe God's law is a higher authority. So don't just whitewash that one away. That, we may come to that at some point. But even if we don't, even if we're not right now, in times of loneliness, in times of isolation, in times of difficulty, when you feel that God has forgotten you or is not listening anymore, you will still face weapons that can be just as deadly as government authorities seeking you. And those weapons are the words that people say. Sometimes the most difficult thing about loneliness and isolation, when we seem to be in a timeout in our lives or in our ministries, sometimes the most difficult thing about that is what people say. The insinuations, the criticisms, the barbs, the things that people shoot at us when they don't really understand what's happening in our lives, or they may misunderstand what's happening in our lives. You know, David went through his share of difficulties and isolation before he became king, running from Saul, hiding in caves, even going over to the Philistines to try to find some relief from that relentless pursuit of Saul. David knows what that's like, and he also knows that some of the most uh, difficult things to face in those times are the words that people say. It's interesting to me that in some of David's psalms, he uses this very same word, hide, in relation to God's protection when people say difficult things about us. Listen to these words, Psalm 31:20. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Psalm 64. He said, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who whet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. Even well-meaning criticism sometimes when we are facing difficulty and loneliness and wondering what God's doing in our lives Sometimes even well-meaning criticism can hurt us deeply. I can recall early in my first pastorate, I, I began pastoring very early. I was a youth pastor in a church, and the pastor left, took another church, and, and through a long series of circumstances I won't try to describe, I ended up becoming the pastor of that church at a very young age. I had still had a year and a half left of Bible college. 
And I hadn't taken all my preaching classes yet, so I had no clue what I was doing. You know, I just was winging it, I guess, and the Lord's help. But I, one of the professors of preaching at the Bible college where I was going, and I was taking a class from him that very semester, if he knew that guys in the class were preaching somewhere, he'd just show up unannounced to hear you. So I get up one morning to preach, and I look out, and there is that professor sitting in the back. Oh, boy, did panic ever set in. Well, I went ahead and preached, you know, the best I could with God's enablement and just preached and, and went to the back afterwards, and he's kind of waiting around for everybody else to leave. And I thought, oh, boy, this is not going to be pretty. So he finally walks up to me, and he looks at me, and we greeted each other, and he looked at me, and he said, you used the nominative case of the pronoun after a preposition. I probably blinked a few times, thinking, is this a joke? Or He went on to say, if you have an English teacher in your congregation, that's going to hurt your ministry. Whoa. I did have an English teacher in the congregation, and so that hit pretty close to home. So I said, well, well thank you. I appreciate that. I didn't realize. He said, you know, instead of saying for you and me, you said for you and I. I thought, Okay. I'll try to work on that. Uh, so I waited just to see if there was anything else he would say about the sermon. You know, was there anything good that you noticed? Was the structure okay? Were, were the illustrations in the right place? Any, he never said another word. It was just the wrong use of the pronoun. Well, I went home feeling kind of low. Uh, you know, even well-meaning, deserved criticism uh, hit me pretty hard that day. And I remembered that I had read something in Charles Haddon Spurgeon's lectures to my students about his own experience as a young pastor early in his ministry. And he started pastoring when he was about 19 years old. Early in his ministry, every Monday morning when he would go into his office, there would be a paper that had been slid under his door that corrected all of his mistakes of English and grammar the day before in his sermon. Now, I can tell you, every pastor just loves to wake up to that on Monday morning. Uh, just, oh, thank you, Lord. But you know what? Rather than becoming angry or bitter or vengeful or trying to find out, who is this? Why don't they leave me alone? He decided to take that seriously and to work on his English. And if you've ever read any of Spurgeon's sermons, he was a master of the English language. I wish it had worked for me that well, but, but he took it seriously and let the Lord use it to bless his, his ministry. So when, when people are after you, when you are in a time where you've seemingly been set aside by God, it's lonely. It's a time of solitude. Maybe you don't even understand what God's doing in your life, and people are shooting arrows at you insinuations, criticisms, maybe even false accusations. How are you going to react? Defensively? With anger? With vengeance? Or will you hide yourself in the Lord? Will you trust Him to protect you and to sort it all out in His timing, in His way, even if it's not until you stand before Him and He clears up everything and makes everything right. Are you willing to do that? My friend, God can take care of you. 
in times of solitude and loneliness, he is doing a work of protection. Secondly, he is doing a work of providence. In times of loneliness, we have to be able to see, even when our spiritual vision is blurry, that God is doing a work of providence. And what that means is that he is in full control of the situation. Whatever you're facing, it did not come as a surprise to him. It did not come as a coincidence. It did not come as an accident. It is a part of God's providential working out of his sovereign purpose and plan for your life. Can you believe that? That's what God's doing. And there's a tremendous example of that in, this, in the story here of Elijah. Look again, verse 4. God tells Elijah, you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Verse 6, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now think about this for a moment. Ravens are birds that feed on small prey or the, the dead carcasses of animals. They eat meat. They are carnivorous. They are not the most likely caterers of bread and meat. And yet God said, I've commanded them. And that's the key word. It's a word of authority. It shows that God providentially is in control of all of his creation, including ravenous ravens. He's in charge of them getting meat and bread and bringing it for breakfast and dinner every day for Elijah. What an amazing picture of God's providential control, even in difficult circumstances. He said, I have commanded the ravens. They are under my authority. There is no one, there is no animal, there is no event in life that is not under God's authority. And God is providentially at work even in our darkest days even in our most lonely times, even in our Brook Carith experiences, God is at work. Can you trust Him to be at work in your life, in your dark and lonely times? Will you believe, will you trust His Word that He is in complete control of every situation in your life and that He providentially, even in your timeouts, will work out his purposes for your good, ultimately, which, by the way, in Romans 8, your good, my good, is described as being conformed to the image of Christ. It's not so that I feel good, that all of my supposed felt needs are met. It's not that. It's that we're conformed to the image of Christ. That's the good that he's working toward. But he's also always working for his glory so that he will be glorified even through our difficult trials. I once read the story of a navigator missionary, a guy with the, the Christian organization, the Navigators, uh, well-known uh, discipleship ministry, started with college students, has broadened out to many other areas. But he felt led of the Lord to uproot his family and take them to establish a navigator's ministry in Uganda, in Africa. So after much prayer and seeking the Lord's will, he actually did. He pulled up his family, uprooted them. They went to Kenya, 
where he placed his family in a secure, safe hotel setting and decided to cross the border into Uganda and do a survey trip to see where they might want to establish this ministry. So he rented a a Land Rover and made a day of trying to, to figure out where he should go and what he should see and what the Lord may want for them there. And he said, uh, one of the first things, and I'm quoting from him now, one of the first things that caught my eye when I came into the village where I was going to spend my first night were several young kids with automatic weapons, shooting them off in the air. As I drove by, they stared at me and pointed their guns. Naturally, he says, he started to wonder, is God in this move? Is God really in this move? He said, finally, after a long day of exploring Uganda, he pulled up to a dingy, dimly lit hotel. Inside, he says, he went up to the registration counter. The clerk, who spoke only a little English, told him there was only one bed available. So he climbed three flights of stairs and opened the door. And what he saw was a bare light bulb hanging by a single wire from the ceiling and two beds in the room. One bed was still made, the other was unmade. And he said, all of a sudden, it hit me. I am sharing this room with somebody else, with a total stranger. And he said, a chill went down my spine. So at that point, he says, he definitely needed to feel the kind of encouragement that only God can give. He dropped to his knees and he said, Lord, look, I'm afraid. I'm in a country I don't know, in a culture that's totally unfamiliar. I have no idea who's sleeping in that other bed. Please show me that you are in this move. And he said, just as he was finishing his prayer, the door flung open, and there stood this six-foot, five-inch African man frowning at him, saying in beautiful British English, what are you doing in my room? He said he knelt there for just another moment and cried out to the Lord silently. And then he got up and he looked at the man and he said, they gave me this bed and I'll only be here one night. What are you doing in my country? The man said to him. Well, I'm with a Christian organization called the Navigators. Ah, the Navigators, the man said. Suddenly, this tall African man came over and grabbed the missionary, gave him the biggest hug he'd ever had, lifted him off the floor and began to dance around the room with him. What was going on? Ah, the navigators, he said. Praise God, praise God. For two years I've prayed that God would send someone to me from this organization. And he pulled out a little scripture memory pack. If you've know anything about the navigators, you know their little scripture memory cards. And at the bottom of each card is printed, the navigators, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Somehow this man had gotten a hold of a scripture pack and was memorizing scripture and had come to know the Lord. And he looked at the missionary and said, are you from Colorado Springs, Colorado? The missionary said, I was, but I'm coming to Uganda to work for the navigators in this country. That Ugandan man, a strong believer, became a board member for navigators in Uganda, helped the missionary find housing, became his best friend. Tell me that God is not at work 
in times of isolation and loneliness. He is. He is doing a work of providence. But notice, there's a third thing that God is doing in our lonely times, in our out-of-the-way times when we're set aside. He's doing a work of proving. He's doing a work of proving. And it's this. God has reasons for testing us. Now, I want you to see it in Elijah's life. Look at verse 5. After God had told him, go hide yourself by the brook Kareth, you'll drink of the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to feed you twice a day. Verse 5 says, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. I don't know about you, but I think my response, if God tells me, now go hide by a brook, you can drink from that brook, you'll get enough to drink, and I'm going to send ravens to feed you twice a day? I think I would have said, Lord, are you sure that's what you want me to do? Is that going to be a good enough hiding place? Ahab's out to get me. Is that going to be a good enough hiding place? Is there going to be enough water there? And did you say something about ravens bringing me food? I think that's the way I would have responded. No indication that Elijah responded that way. It just says, then he went up and obeyed. He did what God told him to do. But then look at what happens in verse 7. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, wait a second. What kind of twist in the story is that? Why is water drying up in Israel anyway? It's because Elijah faithfully declared the message of God, there will be no rain or dew these three years except by my word. Elijah's the reason for the drought, at least the human instrument of God to announce the drought. You would think God would make an exception for him, right? That the brook he's at would not dry up. But he sees it getting smaller every day, and finally, there's no water. Now, I think I'm pretty sure what I would say then, what are you doing, God? I was faithful to you. I announced your drought. Surely you make an exception for me, right? I don't have to go through the drought. Huh. This further test of Elijah's faith, which is actually a test as to whether or not his confidence is really in the water or in God, if he's really trusting God to provide for him, or if he's trusting what he can see, his own resources that God has provided for him. This test, though, of Elijah seems unfair. It just doesn't seem right that God would do that to him. I love what Chuck Swindoll says in his excellent writing on this passage. He says, our human feelings tell us that once our faithful Heavenly Father gives water, He should never take it away. It just wouldn't be fair. Once God gives a mate, He should never take a mate. Once God gives a child, He should never take a child. Once He gives a good business, He has no right to take that business. Once He provides a pastor, He must never call him somewhere else. Once He gives us growth and delight in a ministry, he has no right to step in and say, wait a minute, there's no need to grow larger. Let me take you deeper instead. He goes on to say, when we hit a rough spot in life, our tendency is to feel abandoned, to become resentful, to think, how could God forget me? In fact, 
Just the opposite is true, for at that moment we are more than ever the object of his concern. Do you believe that? Do you believe that even when the tests you're facing that sometimes seem to come in bunches don't seem fair? Why would God allow this? Why would God do this? When they don't seem fair, God is still there. He is testing you, yes, but you are still in His hands. I love what Isaiah says in Isaiah 43, 2. When you go through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you go through the fire, you will not be consumed. And notice, he never promises that we won't go through some deep waters. He never promises that we're going to face some rivers that look uncrossable. He never promises that we will not go through some fiery times in life. He promises that in all those occasions, he will be with us as he was with Elijah. You see, I I believe we are really more influenced by the prosperity gospel than we would like to admit. I really think we are. In our normal way of thinking about how God should treat us, we tend to think more that if I'm faithful to Him, if I'm doing the right thing, if I'm living for Him, why did He allow me to get sick? Why did He allow my family member to die? Why is He doing this to me? And that's the first response of many Christians. Rather than saying, God, I know you're not a cosmic killjoy that just loves seeing me suffer. I believe you're testing me. You are with me, and you are testing me. Let me just remind you of some familiar New Testament scriptures, Romans 5, 3, and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Do you really believe that in your loneliest times, in your isolated times by your brook, Kareth, that God is at work developing perseverance and character and hope in you? When you get home, read James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, other New Testament verses about trials that tell us they are for our good to lead us to maturity to enable us to develop genuine faith that is not just, oh, I can trust God whenever things are going great. That's not really deep faith. Genuine deep faith is cultivated in the fires of testing. And God sometimes tests us in difficult and lonely times. You know, the way we think often is like this. We pray, Lord, I want to be godly, but all the time we're thinking, just don't hurt me too much. We pray, Lord, teach me to depend on you. But all the time we're thinking, don't take away any of my creature comforts. We often pray, Lord, help me to be strong spiritually. But in our minds we're thinking, just please don't allow me to suffer. You know what? That's kind of like telling the army, make me a good soldier, but no basic training, please. No boot camp. The very way that you learn to become a good soldier is through boot camp, right? Those of you who've been through that experience know that's where you learn the discipline and respect for authority that will allow you to develop into being a good soldier. The way God develops us spiritually, the way He forms our character, the way that He produces genuine faith and hope is through fiery trials. 
And so when you find yourself set aside a time out in life, when you find yourself all alone and nobody else understands and they're looking at you and saying things, remember that God is building you through testing. He is doing a work of proving. But one final thing, He's doing a work of preparation. Now there's not a verse here that tells me that, but as I read along through the whole context of chapter 17 and 18, And if you do it, you'll see it too, I'm sure, that God is using this experience and other difficult experiences he went through to prepare him for the apex of his ministry, which is on Mount Carmel. As he challenges the prophets of Baal to a contest to see who will demonstrate himself to be the true God. Now, remember the background here. Israel has been taken up, just enraptured with Baal worship. Baal was the Phoenician god of fertility, which basically means he allows the ground to become fertile again after a long winter to produce our crops. So they believed that he was the god that gave them food. Uh, they, They believed that he was the god that allowed the rain to come so that the ground would become fertile and produce crops again. They believed that in so doing, he was the God who revived life right out of the ground in springtime. And they believed that because it was mainly storms that brought that rain, that brought that fertile soil, that produced the crops again, that he was the God of the thunder, and he showed himself on thunder and lightning. That was Baal. So in order to come to Mount Carmel, God needs to prepare a man who is confident to the very bottom of his soul that only God is the true God, not Baal. And so God prepares him over a period of time. Oh, so they believe that Baal is the God who provides rain? Elijah, I'll show you who provides rain. In fact, I will withhold rain for three years, even do. So God is preparing him. Oh, they believe that uh, Baal gives them food? I'll show you who gives food. I'll take you out to a brook, Kareth. I'll use ravens to bring you food. Oh, so they believe that Baal revives human life or the life of the soil? I'll show you who revives life. I'll take you to Zarephath. And by the way, that woman is going to be out gathering sticks to prepare her last meal for her and her son. And when you tell her to prepare for me first and stretches her faith, God will give her enough oil and meal for each day, and it will not run out. I'll show you who gives food. But you know what happened later is that widow's son died. And God says, okay, Elijah, I'm going to show you who gives life. And he used Elijah to raise that boy back from the dead, something which had no precedent in Scripture before that. What's God doing in all those things? He's preparing him for Mount Carmel. The only thing that God has not done yet that Baal claims to do is to give fire through a thunderstorm to revive the land and produce crops, to give that fire from heaven. And God says, okay, so they claim that Baal's the one who gives those thunderstorms and rides on the clouds and comes through the lightning. 
I'll show you. I can send fire from heaven without a cloud in the sky. When the sky is blue and it hasn't rained for three years and there's no sign of it raining yet, I'll show you who gives fire from heaven. I don't know that Elijah would have been ready to trust God and make that the ultimate contest on Mount Carmel if he had not already seen that God provides food. God withholds rain and provides rain. God gives back life. He came to Mount Carmel with the absolute assurance that God can also produce fire from heaven. God was preparing him for that ministry. You know, sometimes I think we, uh, we think that we're more ready for Carmel than we really are. And the things that God is doing in our lives to stretch us and test us and seemingly even hurt us are really his means of preparing us for what he has for us yet to do for his glory. How much of God's good work have we missed in our lives because we resisted the means he used to prepare us for those works. Tom Watson Sr. was the founder of IBM and managed that corporation for 40 years. There are lots of great stories about his leadership, but one of the greatest stories of his leadership was one time when a junior executive, a rising star in IBM, had ventured into an area trying to lead the company in a new area and had lost $10 million in doing so. And so he's called into Tom Watson's office, and the nervous young executive came into his office, and he blurted out, I guess you want my resignation, don't you? And Watson looked up at him and said, Are you kidding me? We just spent $10 million educating you. He had wise leadership. God never wastes a trial. He is always preparing us for something He wants us to do. So God is at work in your loneliest times, in your most difficult times, in your Brooke Kareth experiences. He is at work. He's doing a work of protection. He's doing a work of providence. He's doing a work of proving, of testing you, and he's doing a work of preparation. I don't know about you, but I'm a big sports fan, and I love college basketball. It's the greatest time of year for college basketball fans. Well, actually, March is the greatest time of year during the tournament. But you ever noticed what happens in a timeout at a basketball game? It's very easy for the casual observer to think, Well, that's a break in the action. Nothing is happening. They're going to run a commercial. I'll go get another snack. You know, that's just the way timeouts are. But timeouts can be the most important time of the game strategically. You know, the managers are giving water bottles and towels to the players to kind of prep them, get them ready to go back in. One of the assistant coaches is over at the scorer's table checking to make sure exactly how many timeouts do we have and how many fouls does the opposing center have. And there's a trainer that's retightening the brace on the star forward's knee. The assistant coaches huddle around the head coach, and they're devising a play to come out of the timeout. And they go back and give all the players, remind them of all their responsibilities. This is a play we're going to run. This is what you're supposed to be doing. This is where you're supposed to be. That is the most important part of the game. The timeouts in our lives, please don't miss them. Please don't think that this is just a time when I've been set aside. I've got to wait for the action to start again. The timeout that God places you in may be the most important time of your life if you will allow 
God to show what He's doing in your life during that time out. God is at work in your times of loneliness, in your time outs. Will you, instead of complaining about the trial, the difficulty, the time out, the inactivity, the being set aside for so long, instead of complaining about that and looking for something else, will you look instead? Will I look instead for the work that God is doing in lonely times? Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, this is not always easy to say. certainly isn't for me. But we thank you for lonely times. We thank you that you haven't left us. You're not finished with us. You haven't forgotten about us. You're still very much at work. And we thank you for the works that you do. Thank you for examples like Elijah that give us hope that even when we're idle, set aside, at Brook Kareeth, you are very much at work. Help us to see your work in our lives. Accept it. Grow from it. And go away from it stronger when you allow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.